Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 166 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode, we're joined by music journalist Adrian Thrills. This fella's story with Paul Weller goes back to 1976, even before that Polydor record deal. We'll talk about his 48 Thrills fanzine, one of the original punk fanzines that started in November 1976. With exclusive on bands like The Sex Pistols, The Clash, Subway Sex, and of course, The Jam. Adrian was there at the 100 Club. Ronnie Scott's, The Marquee, Nashville, and so many more iconic venues with the band, even heading off with them on their early tours. Places like Dunstable, Falkirk, even Barrow Inferness, for goodness sake. This fella is such a legend in Weller circles that he's even mentioned on the back of the Dig the New Breed album. We'll talk about his career as an enemy journalist in the 80s, and plenty of connections with Weller from the jam to the style council to solo to now. He even got to write sleeve notes on albums like The Very Best of the Jam, Live at the BBC, and Hit Parade. You're going to love this one. Let's get into it. Adrian Thrills, thanks for joining me. Good to be here. I'm really looking forward to digging into your stories because, I mean, your relationship with Paul Weller, The Jam, goes back to early 1976. I mean, we're talking pre-record deal, right? Absolutely. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I probably first saw The Jam, I would think, probably about September 76 and I'd become aware of them I was a kind of proto punk living in kind of the London suburbs and being through like the soul scene I was a kind of suburban soul boy and and really apart from Bowie and Roxy and I had really that much interest in rock music and then a couple of friends said go, go and see this band called the Sex Pistols so I went to see the Pistols in about August 76 and I kind of found my tribe as it were and immediately I kind of saw the pistols the flash and got totally immersed in the um the kind of very early London punk scene which despite it's, it's kind of you know tabloid media reputation as being this kind of horribly violent thing was actually a really to me and the people I met it was a really kind of innocent and naive 
sort of scene. Everyone was so friendly and, and you know, this kind of reputation that, that the punks had. I certainly didn't see it at those early gigs. I think that was a kind of later manifestation of the post-Grundy thing. I made a few mates there, Shane McGowan being one of them. And I can't remember who it was that first mentioned the jam, but we, we kind of heard about this band who were basically kind of dressed in mod gear, but were playing with the kind of energy of punk. And uh, we noticed that they were playing, I think, I think they were supporting a band called Rugalator, a pub rock band at the 100 Club. So I went along with Shane and a couple of others. And we were just blown away by the energy, by Weller's intensity on stage. Their set in those days, was it was a kind of mixture of soulful originals and, and classic kind of Motown and stacks and old R&B covers, as was the way in those days. I mean, the, the jam in those early days, they didn't really have an audience. Unlike the Pistols and the Clash, you had a kind of ready-made punk audience. The jam, it took them a while. It took them a few months, certainly really, I would say, until certainly till In The City came out. It was only really with the first album that you kind of started getting identifiable jam fans. I mean, punk and the whole London scene at that time, it was so exciting because it hadn't really coalesced. No one kind of really knew what it was about, the stereotypes. I mean, I think even when I first started going, people weren't even sure if it was called punk or not. You know, it was just <laughs> kind of new bunch of bands. But um, I mean, the jam was slightly apart from... You know, they were like, as Weller famously said, the black sheep of the new wave. And because they had these, I kind of, they, did, they dressed in sharp suits and they played these old 60s covers, you know, as did the Pistols, actually. The pist- early Pistols, half of their set was old 60s covers. But um, Weller, I don't think he really saw punk as a year zero. He saw it as a continuation of something that had started in the 60s, with, I guess, with the mod scene. And, um, and yeah, there were some great early gigs, really good memories. And there's nothing really. I mean, I've seen Paul play many amazing gigs over the years, but there, as we've seen the clash early on, there's there's something about that private party that, you know, you know that you kind of saw something as it was kind of forming. So how old are you at this point? I'm a little bit younger than Paul. I was probably, I was 17, I guess, at that okay. point. I remember I used to go and see the clash a period in late 76 more or less every weekend there'd be a clash gig somewhere likewise the jam shortly afterwards um but in quite weird places i mean they i mean the jam played the pub rock circuit so they played the hope and anchor and the marquee usually usually as a support act you know the clash i saw in um in a place in ilford i saw them in Leighton buzzard i saw the jam in dunstable they, they weren't playing the kind of the hot spots of the west end all the time the, you know they were people would play gigs wherever they could get them i remember I mean, the jam, the, um, I remember the, well, you know, there's famously the gig at the, one of the gigs at the Marquee where they were supporting a band called Bearded Lady. <laughs> and this is mentioned on Dig the New Breed, right? Yeah. Dig the New Breed theme, match, yeah, where Paul was, uh, which was, as was the way you get in, in those days, a lot of gigs, people as a kind of hangover from the, kind of hippie and the progressive rock thing, people would go to gigs and they'd sit down cross-legged at the floor. And so... <laughs> So the, the bearded lady fans, they came in and they sat cross-legged on the floor as the jam were like cranking out these mod punk anthems at 100 miles an hour. And Paul got increasingly frustrated at that and invited Shane, myself and another early jam fan, Claudio Magnani, on stage, as he said, I think, to the uh, disgust of the marquee hippies to kind of, kind of gyrate very uh, <laughs> on stage with the jam you're just on stage then just pogoing about pogoing and doing a bit of kind of mod dancing and um just to try and liven up the crowd get some sort of reaction you know, i'm sure it didn't go down too well with the uh 
executed massive. <laughs> you mentioned like the strange venues because there's even like you know there's even a slot at Ronnie Scott's where they're upstairs at Ronnie Scott's in the kind of bar area, right? <laughs> that would have been what well, the end yeah, of end did, of seventy six. Yeah, they did. Um, I was at that show as well. That was um, yeah late seventy six upstairs at Ronnie's. They were they weren't big enough really to play the kind of hallowed downstairs grand and. Um, it was upstairs, and again, Paul was—he was on—he was, was so—he was on fire in those days, and uh, he famously smashed up a guitar. I can't remember if it was a Rickenbacker, but um, I remember he smashed up a guitar on stage. You know, kind of emulating Pete Townsend, I guess. I remember walking out with, with Shane McGowan and Shane Sauer. You know, that was just so inspiring, so inspiring seeing me you that know, smashing that guitar. You know, I was on stage twice with the Jam. Actually, there was once the famous Marquee incident, and there was another very brief appearance when um, they're playing the Red Cow. I think it was just before they did their their residency there. They was on court with Batman. For some reason, they came back on stage and Rick Buckler had disappeared. Like he'd just gone for a toilet break and uh, Paul said, Thrills, can you play drums? I went, no. He said, well, just, just like try and hold a beat and... Um, <laughs> And we'll do it. And then luckily, to save my blushes, Rick, just as they were about to start song, Rick reappeared. So, uh, kind of a very, uh, sort of a 10 second spot behind the, uh, the drum kit. But, uh, <laughs> fair enough. So it's, it's fair to say, I mean, you, your, your career did not go in a, in a uh, musical direction in the sense that you could play, you could sing and all that. But I had, a, I briefly was in a band with Shane, actually. We, uh, Shane and Shan Bradley, we sort of messed around a little bit, um, in someone's kind of, you know, makeshift bedroom studio and but no it was never it was never really for me i always figured out i'd have more of a more of a chance of writing about these characters than actually um performing as such but i did a fanzine 48 thrills which was one of the first of the punk fanzines very much in the in the vein of sniffing glue and the clues in the title it was a fanzine i mean you know i was it was basically dedicated to the clash and the jam i did one of the first ever jam interviews again with shane mcgowan in tow we interviewed paul at the hundred club what can you remember about that first interview this was like pre like any media for them really at that point right yeah even then paul was he was you know he was very into punk but he he had his own take on it and he you know he even thought then you know some of the punk bands were becoming stars and he he didn't like that i mean i think, I think pete townsend once said of paul he's never a, a musician that's hung up on their credibility as Paul. you know he was he was so vehemently against any kind of what he would see as a, as a sellout he took the punk thing that DIY, no sellout thing, very, very to heart, very much to heart. I can't remember much about the, the interview. I know we talked a bit about, he talked a lot about Mod and his inspirations and how uh, he was inspired by punk and just the, just the thoughts of really lots of young bands getting together. And even though Paul, Paul was 18 when the jam first started really breaking into the London circuit. And he was a couple of years younger, two, you know, three or four years younger than most of the punk bands. I mean, Paul's 24 when the jam split up, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, it's like no age at all, is it really? No. It's the idea that, yeah, I always still find mind boggling that George Harrison was 27 when the Beatles split up. You know, but, you know, to have done all of the jam by the age of 24 is quite astonishing, really. You talked about the fact there was this real snobbery around the jam. Yeah, I think it's because they just didn't. There was a certain punk orthodoxy and punk was a slightly, it was quite, it was, it was kind of quite art school and fashion conscious. Not that Paul isn't those things because he, he very much is those things, but he, I don't know, he just I think is in, in the sounds of the, street on the first jam album you know, you know i come from woking and you'll say I, 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 you'll say i'm a fraud i think there's a little bit of that which 
actually was one of the jam's great strengths that they spoke to those kids in suburban towns. At the time I first got into the jam, I was living in Stevenage, which is a new town about 25 miles from London. You know, Paul was in Woking. Um, you know, we were kind of classic suburban kids. I think Paul, he, he sort of somehow felt slightly apart from the, um, from the London punk scene, even though those of those, the, the bands themselves, I think, really liked the jam. You'd, all, you'd quite often see Joe Strummer was at a lot of jam gigs. You'd see Glenn Matlock and Steve Jones there. I remember one of the marquee gigs, and it wasn't the Bearded Lady one, it was a bit earlier than that. I remember they were supporting Little Bob Story, a French rock and roll singer. They were supporting Little Bob. And I remember at that gig, I noticed that Malcolm McLaren was was standing at the back of the hall with um, a couple of the pistols. And uh, I'd, I'd met Malcolm and I'd sort of been to quite a few pistols gigs and he kind of beckoned me over and he kind of said, got something for you here and he kind of reached into his coat and gave me a hot off the press copy of anarchy in the uk oh my god seven inch single which i've still got in this plastic sleeve and so there was you know they were very much in the scene but not quite of it it's they had a kind of strange relationship with punk and i think in the long term that probably suited well because he he, he never really has been that comfortable at being pigeonholed and and I think you saw that towards the end of the jam when they embraced far more kind of soul and R&B influences and started using horns. You know, he, he kind of never, never really kind of wanted to be kind of an orthodox punk. The 48 Thrills, so you create this, one of the original punk fanzines. First issue came out uh, November 1976. Worth an absolute fortune now, folks, if you've, <laughs> if you've got one of those, right? <laughs> Proper punk ethos in the sense that like fully DIY, this is you at home sticking images onto a piece, piece of A4, folding it up, stapling it, all that, right? Indeed, yeah. I mean, we used to, you know, and it kind of, I think the, the print run of the first one was about 25 to 50 maybe, and then it gradually ballooned. So to kind of, I think by the end, even by the end, we weren't doing any more, you know, maybe a 1,000 copies, 1,500 copies. We used to go to, um, there was a print workshop in Poland Street in the West End. So I'd literally, I'd go in there with my typed and handcrafted sheets. And I couldn't afford, if, if you paid a lot, there was, they had different rates. One of them was just to kind of print them, double-sided print, but you had to pay a lot more. They would automatically staple them, but that, that kind of my budget didn't stretch to that. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> that, um, you know, and I do remember actually with one of the issues, I had all the unstapled sheets and I knew that the jam were in uh, Polydor Studios in um, just off New Bond Street, just off uh, Bond Street, recording their debut album. And I, I thought, you know, I'd pop in, see how it was going. I think they were doing away at the numbers, away from the numbers at the time. And, uh, we literally put all the pages of the fanzine out on the floor in the control room and Paul, Rick and Bruce helped me staple that issue together. In those days, the proximity and the access you had to the bands was just unbelievable. You know, it was incredible. You know, you literally were going on tour with them. You were, they were pals as much as you, you know, I wasn't writing about them in a detached journalistic way. It was very much we were all part of the same thing. You're going to I mean some very glamorous places. We're talking about Crawley and Barrow in Finesse and all sorts. <laughs> that access thing's really interesting because I mean that's not a huge audience that you had for the fanzine, but the fact that you can get that access, you can join them on the road, you're writing about them, you're part of that inner circle is remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. Even you've seen Paul do amazing gigs since then, you know, Albert Hall and Yo to Glastonbury or whatever. But um, for those who were there in the early days, there's something there is something special about that. Um, they were good times. I mean, uh, your, your relation, you know, the relationship between the journalist and the band it obviously changes. I went on to write for the enemy, and and even then, I mean, we we got incredible access to bands. 
would think you know unbelievable now, but you, the relationship does change slightly in that you are slightly more detached, more critical. And I mean, I stayed friends with Paul, but there would be moments where you know, let's say there'd be you know, be disagreements over a review, and I think he there was a period of course where it didn't take too kindly to like the new romantic scene and he kind of thought that the enemy had strayed a little bit too much into that kind of london i remember he sort of chastised me and other other enemy writers from the stage at a gig at sabelle center as the uh, the enemy cocktail set you know <laughs> i <laughs> i heard there was another word in that phrase <laughs> yeah i think there was, think there was. Yeah. <laughs> that ruffled a few feathers i I'd, I'd i felt the jam as well by 81 in respect looking back i think i was wrong but i felt they were in a bit of a rut at that point and uh, i reviewed a rainbow show where i kind of said they're in a rut and it's going to take all of weller's flair to get them out of it and um i think as well he also probably sensed around that period that the jam as a vehicle for his songwriting, he'd probably taken it as far as he could. And you could see it in the later jam singles. And I mean, after the jam finished with Beat Surrender and the Star Council began with Speak Like a Child. And if you put those records back to back, there's not a hell of, there's not a world of difference, really. I think, it, I think there was quite a seamless transition into the more eclectic music he was making with the Star Council. I think it was on the cards anyway. And I did interview him actually after that review and the enemy cocktail set jibe. I did interview him again just at the very end of the jam. And I made um, Beat Surrender, I made Single of the Week and I interviewed them on the first episode of the tube and um, i kind of interviewed them backstage there and uh, yeah it would have been one of their final if, if not the final tv performance of theirs yeah and i didn't see i didn't see the final gig i didn't see the brighton one i saw the, the wembley one of the wembley shows just before which was uh, an emotional night because it's that thing i guess there's also that part of you that's been following the journey from the beginning you're tied into the you know that inner circle like i say as, as, as a journalist there's also you as a fan right and you're a young kid you love this band so when paul calls it quits was that did you have that same kind of reaction that so many fans had over the end of the band it was clearly a, a momentous um time for, for for jam fans um no not really to be honest because i think much as i was a jam fan and i was very involved in most of their career as a fan and as a journalist i think i also felt it was he, it was time for him to move on i mean i know rick and bruce and many other people would say that the jam could have you know gone he could have taken it further i'm sure he could have done but i think he he just wanted to he's a very restless individual and he's tended to operate a very scorched earth policy towards his past career where every time he's kind of moved on to a new incarnation so when he formed the style council he he didn't play jam songs live i think you know once he launched his solo career at first it was very much focused on just the solo material i think he's mellowed a lot in you know in recent years he takes a more i guess a grown-up attitude and he kind of sees it as he's able to see it as a the great entire body of work that it is and it was only really when i mean he did early days of the start of the solo years because he had to play the style councils a little bit of jam but it was only when that acoustic tour happened that really then suddenly it was embracing and seeing the whole yeah. thing as a big catalog this incredible catalog and we'll talk about the style council on solo there's a couple of other things i want to ask about the jam so there's this wonderful picture in what would it been 77 the nashville of you shane claudio you're all in ties and you're going absolutely mad for it you know the yeah. one i'm talking about <laughs> I do, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's weird because I don't think we didn't we didn't have a meeting beforehand to coordinate our 
our dress, but we did all turn up at that show wearing pretty much the same thing. We, I mean, we were just fixtures. We did follow them around and uh, along with, you know, there's a couple of others. I mean, uh, Jill Price, who later became Paul's girlfriend, was very much part of our little gang. You know, there was, you'd see the same people gig in, gig, gig out, really, and you'd always chat to the band afterwards. And, you know, I went to Paul's house a few times in, in Woking when, um, you know, just stopping off on the way back from gigs. And uh, even then, I knew he was a kind of a Beatles fan. I didn't realise his, his childhood bedroom was, it was a shrine to the Fab Four with posters, Beatles memorabilia, Beatles fan club magazine, pretty much every edition of that. I mean, he was a real Fab's junkie, you know. It's funny, isn't it? Because you wonder, I mean, so many of the things that they then did and Paul's done seem to reflect the Beatles and McCartney, particularly and stuff, where you go, you know, even like the fan club and that being a thing, that wasn't really like every band weren't doing that, but that mirrored the the Beatles stuff, right? Even you wonder if like the length of time they were together tied in with the jam with the Beatles and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like that. Yeah, it's almost identical time period, right? Yeah. Um, issue three of 48 Thrills, you reviewed in the city the singles. So you got that really early on. I guess I did. Yeah. And, uh, or, uh, in the city, there's a thousand things I want to say to you, as it was originally called. Yeah. Kind of, <laughs> I, got, I got Paul to, I asked him for some lyrics and he, he, he was, he was a, always a good letter writer, Paul. He way before mobile phones or texts or um, emails or whatever. You know, he, you know, so occasionally I'd send them a copy of the magazine. He'd write a letter back, almost critiquing that issue. Is you know, it was kind of lively up yourself, Adrian. This was a crap issue, you know. Uh, <laughs> and he did. He typed out the lyrics of uh, a couple of songs, one of which was in the city, and it was called "In the City." There's a thousand things I want to say to you. That was always going to be the debut single. It's a great star, isn't it? It's absolutely brilliant. Um, you mentioned the studio, so. Um... Then you talked about the fact that 1980s, so you're at NME and they sweep the board at the, the reader's poll. I mean, literally win every single award. I mean, probably even the female ones as well. And you went and told them about the fact that they'd won this award and then, then get to, get to see them recording. This is Townhouse Studios, get to see them recording going underground. Right. Yeah. It was just their moment by that point. They were just so. They were like the biggest band in Britain, and you know, not just in the enemy. You know, the singles were going straight in at number one. It was their imperial phase, and uh, they were making such amazing records at that time as well. And I think going, you know, with uh, along with Vic Smith, Vic Coppersmith Heaven, they'd hit a sound that they kind of struck, you know, all mod cons onwards. They they kind of found a real sound, and they, they were on a roll between you know all mod cons and and kind of setting songs and even the, the non-album singles in between you know like Strange Town and When You're Young um, a bit like The Clash from the same point the Clash released two or three non-album singles that I think was you know Clash City Rockers Complete Control that you know didn't come up on albums you forget these bands they were just they were just chucking out this stuff nowadays they, that, they, any one of those tracks would be the lead track on an album but in those days they were just stopgap non-album singles yeah you know. which is mad isn't it I remember and you wrote that in the, the sleeve notes for the very best of the jam this would have been what 97 and you talked about yeah, while some of the jam's finest moments remain tucked away on b-sides and obscure album tracks there could be no doubt that they were a truly great singles band and but again that echoes the beatles thing doesn't it where yeah. they were doing the singles that weren't on albums and the singles were such an important thing for them and the b-sides yeah. as well yeah i mean they were great i mean i just, I, you know, I just love strange town and when you're young i just thought both those records when they came out and even even the b-side uh you know butterfly collector 
and one strange town, you know, that's in anyone else's hands. It's one of your, one of your best songs, you know, and it's just a B side. And the same is true of the Snark Council. Again, such a, you know, hugely successful singles band, cracking B sides. But the fact that the, the B sides were so strong that the jam of the Snark Council, they were playing them as part of the tour set list, you know, that's how good they are. Yeah. Incredible consistency. Finishing off on the jam, one thing that came up as well was there was an interview where you chatted with Paul on a, um, on the tour bus in Brighton. Oh, yeah. And, and, and he was talking about like how serious he took it. And he said, we're not like the boomtown rats who are just having a laugh. I think it's important for bands to take themselves seriously. This wasn't always fun for him, was it? It was like, it was proper serious work. No, no that was, uh, that was in zigzag, that interview. And, um, I think he might have had a few, he probably might have had a few beers in the coach coming back from the gig and he was just shooting from the hip. And I think he just, sometimes he'd he, he just say things and, you know, you read them. I remember that I spoke to him a few weeks after that came out and he said, yeah, you know, either he kind of felt he overstepped the mark or just, he just didn't like reading back what he'd said. It wasn't anything I'd written. It was just, uh, you know, I've interviewed him so many times over the years and he'll always, you know, he's, he's a very honest and, you know, very, He'll speak his mind. He could be pretty tricky at times, though. I mean, Gary Crowley had this conversation. I know you're, you know, friends with Gary Crowley as well. Yeah, you know, he wasn't always the kindest to you folks, was he? As an interviewee. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it was, there was a lot of tit for tat. And I think that just, that was as much as Paul himself, it was also symptomatic of the times. You know, they, they were less sensitive times. So people would, I mean, I know Twitter is, is be quite a brutal place these days, but interviews you did in those days, they weren't bland. And, you know, artists, they didn't like a question, they'd let you know. There was a fair bit of give and take. And, uh, yeah, Paul was, you know, he, he did take it very seriously. He needed to take the jam very seriously. But then I think as well, after a while, all that kind of seriousness and all that spokesman for a generation stuff, I think it, I think it did get on top of him, which is why Style Council, there's a bit more levity in a lot of what the Star Council did, even though they'd still, in a way, the Star Council, there were more, there was a, there was more social realism and politics in, in some of the songs. But um, I think as a concept, Star Council mm. was a little bit more frivolous than the jam. Yeah. And certainly even like the music videos were, you know, more yeah. tongue in cheek, lots more silliness involved and probably realizing that some of this music industry stuff is just utterly ridiculous. So let's, yeah. let's poke it, poke it, poke it and see what happens. Did you have much connection with the Style Council? Was that your band? And, and did you interview Paul during that time? We still kept in touch and I'd see them live. I remember going down to the uh, Solid Bond a few times. I didn't have quite the same connection as we did in the, the jam era. They made some great music and. You know, you could see his songwriting developed and, you know, the range of influences, you know, some serious, some not so serious, French and Italian shtick and, you know, the kind of Gaulois and cappuccinos and stuff like that. It was all kind of a bit of fun, really, wasn't it? But underneath it, there was still, you know, the, the songwriting, which is what you always come back to with, with Paul, is just he is a, a great, one of the great British songwriters and the body of work he's produced over getting on for 50 years now is pretty breathtaking yeah remarkable isn't it in the market for investment worthy bags watches and fine jewelry rebag is the answer rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity use rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands including louis vuitton chanel and cartier head to rebag.com to get five percent off your first purchase with code rebag new shop today at rebag.com that's r-e-b-a-g.com and use promo code rebag new for five percent off your first purchase 
Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. We get the solo years and Paul's bigger than ever. I mean, Stanley wrote like, yeah. you know, his biggest selling album from anything, any period. Yeah. And at that point, Polydor then realize, you know, start re-releasing and repackaging. And we get the, the very best of the jam where you, you know, you do sleeve notes. We get live yeah. at the BBC where you do sleeve notes. So I wanted to dig into some of those because there was a really interesting bit in the very best of the jam, actually, where you were talking about the impact of some of the bands you've mentioned, some of the artists you've mentioned that, you know, we know Paul was, you know, was influenced by you know, small faces, the beast kinks that type of thing but you mentioned about the impact of the gang of four and wire and the impact that they had on paul's writing was which was often neglected to be mentioned was how you phrased it you kind of read little snippets but it's not something i've ever really dug into properly i think paul is he's a musical fanatic and even now he's still you can tell in the stuff he's into he'll love listening to new stuff and he was really he was really taken with that kind of slightly post-punk very angular mostly northern bands you know the gang of four and mekons it was around the time of Funeral Pyre. That, that, I think that was a single where you could hear a little bit of that jagged, angular guitars. And um, it was an avenue in a way that I I thought they could have gone down that a lot more. And I think in some ways, Paul, he did revisit it years, years later on albums like Sonic Kicks. I think there was, you know, that kind of you know, motoric beats and, and stuff like that. It probably, probably took him 30 years to kind of, for that particular little kind of strand of influences to come to some kind of fruition. I think it's, it's something he touched on. Um, I mean, yeah, listen to the Gang of Four. I mean, you know, uh, the late Andy Gill, the guitarist, he, if you listen to his guitar, it was so, kind of aggressive and jagged and trebly and you could hear you could hear elements of Wilco Johnson in the Gang of Four as you could in in Paul's rhythm guitar playing so you know you could see there was there was common ground there but yeah it is it is an oft neglected little kind of back portal of the jam where they they kind of went a bit post-punk it's, and you're right around sonic kicks and bits of wake up the nation and stuff like that where it's like you know those influences become more and whether he's just gone fuck it i'm gonna t- i'm gonna do what i want to do because i think there was an interview around that time i think you interviewed paul around the album uh, 22 dreams that was really him taking off the shackles you know he's always created the music he wanted to but at that point he really did kind of go well screw it, i'm just going to do what I want to do, I right? That, that album in particular, I think it was like the liberation of turning 50 and just thinking, I'm going to make the record I want. And, you know, he'll, bits of free jazz. Um, Bit of tango, I yeah. I remember having a conversation with him about tango. I kind of said, oh, I've been, you know, he, said, he always says, yeah, what are you listening to? What are you listening to? I said, oh, it's funny if I've sort of listened to um, some kind of Latin American music. I really kind of like, you know, there's there's a couple of um, bands who are kind of fusing electronic music with tango. And you kind of, why, why? can you, you know, send me a, Send me, a, do me a tape, burn me a CD. You know, he's always been like that. If, if he kind of hears of something, he's still got a kind of a wonderful curiosity that not many artists of his standing and experience. You know, you can say, you know, Elton John for one. You know, he is he's an avid consumer of like mm. loads of music, but it's hard to think of anyone else other than you know, than, you know, Weller is very much still in, in his sixties. He's still very much, in, you know, he, he wants to listen to new music. Yeah. And it's one of those things. I mean, Elton John now has got his own radio show on um, yeah. Apple Music or Beats or whatever it's called these days. Well, has done the odd one, but you feel like actually Weller needs a weekly slot. The amount of bands yeah. and artists he's introduced me to. And you're just like, my God, this man's got incredible taste. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, he, you know, he, he he would do that pretty well. I love the fact he's asking you to burn him a seat. That's wonderful. And around 22 Dreams, actually, there's one thing he said as well. It was about the fact that I think his kids were at that point, you know, Leah and Nat were getting into music and stuff. And he yeah. talks about the fact that he sees uh, becoming a musician as a great thing to do. It's still a, a noble profession is how he phrased it. Interesting, isn't it? Because you'd think he's seen the music business from every aspect possible, you know, because, you know, don't forget his, his career, much as he's been a pretty consistent songwriter, commercially, they've been real lows and they've been, they've been moments where he's gone probably out of fashion and I think you know kind of the tail end of the style council where I think he'd you know the jam fans I think are kind of a more loyal and more broad-minded bunch than they're often given credit for but I think towards the end of the style council he had somehow managed to alienate vast swathes of his audience and um, I think obviously there was that little there was you know the jam had a slightly tricky period didn't they after the I mean they, they were putting records out with such regularity they were so prolific and the demands were essentially you know when they started it was two hours a year so i don't think the modern world is as bad as it's sometimes painted but it does feel it feels a slightly hurried record and then there was the infamous album that was scrapped between modern world and all more comes where chris parry just kind of told him these these songs aren't good enough did some of those songs ultimately did they ever surface i think maybe a few of them did i think bits some. of them yeah and i think bits of them then were just reworked and became from what i, yeah, what yeah. I understand and, as well and, from this. so i'm even talking about that album the one that never was and there's a song called i want to paint and <laughs> i think one i think one of the songs from that era I think one that i really like is um aunties and uncles which is i think is the b-side of all around the world or something um which kind of maybe gives an indication of where they were heading with you know it's a slight kind of more pastoral kind of reflective sound and then of course he came back with all my cons which was just crunching anthems mm. but it could be you know that if they if they'd actually hadn't had that conversation well chris parry hadn't pushed back on it you know they released that album the jam's done it's dead right because you know yeah. three yeah. and then we're not having this conversation are we more recent years i know that you've been a really big fan of output from things like you know saturn's pattern we've had on sunset fat pop saturn's pattern i want to kick off with because actually it's not an album that's come up very often on on the podcast but it's a, a really kind of amazing piece of work because it's primarily it's him it's ben gordelia and it's andy crofts and then lots of little guests and stuff you said a record that wouldn't have sounded out of place in 1960 summer of love was how you described it yeah 67 i think is it's a key year for him just in terms of influences when the jam were kind of breaking through he wasn't a great reader he didn't have you know he, he, i don't think he was particularly academic at school but yeah, he was writing these lyrics that are kind of so poetic and flowery and evocative i remember asking once he said where does it come from where does this you know these this turn of phrase and he, the only thing he could pinpoint was listening to early Pink Floyd and Traffic and the Beatles and, you know, that kind of wistful English psychedelia. I think that's where he took his, it, it kind of, it obviously sparked something in his imagination that kind of fed through into these, into these lyrics. 22 Dreams, I think, was a water. I think he was making pretty good solo records, obviously Stanley Road. I think the ones immediately before 22 Dreams, heliocentric, they were kind of good records. They were they weren't particularly surprising records. You know, they were thinking that's an avenue you'd almost expect Paul to be going down. And I think with 22 Dreams, he, he kind of basically ripped up the rule book again. And I mean, 22 Dreams, I always think of it as, as part of a trilogy with Wake Up the Nation and Sonic Kicks, where very different records, but it was like, hang on, I'm going to do something. It's almost like, because we think, you know, that you know, that in the 70s and early 80s, there was a jam. The rest of the 80s was the Style Council. The 90s was the Britpop 
era of the solo career. But his solo career, actually, it's not just he's had the Jam, the Star Council and solo. I think even his solo career, you can break up into into different incarnations. And I think there was definitely a new one started with the 22 Dreams, where it just became so much more esoteric. With Fat Pop, he, he's, you know, he brought it, a lot of it back to just classic pop songs, you know, three minute, very catchy three-minute singles. Effortless excellence was what you said about that one. And on Sunset, I know that you really, really liked as well. And you said, you know, even a musician as restless as Paul Weller sometimes feels the urge to return to the sounds that first inspired him. It's that thing of back, almost back to 67. And one thing you said there about the lyrics, I guess his education was the lyrics of the Beatles, the Kinks and stuff like that. Most kids are not going to be doing like understanding and reading the lyrics in that way. You'd have thought they just like the songs and the melodies and the chorus and you can sing along. It's a different thing, isn't it? To kind of really look into the words and what they mean and that understanding yeah i think i mean i think about paul as well as when he um when he did start getting into reading he he then just devoured he started devouring books I remember even really early on that he gave me a copy of um one through over the cuckoo's nest in paperback which i've still got and you know he goes you've got to read this you've got to read this you know i think that was around the time they're doing the, the second album and it's you know it's all about songs like you know the combine and um standards and stuff you know which would that kind of slight dystopian feel to it yeah we were just young and discovering stuff you know so i think with paul obviously he developed a massive interest in poetry didn't he started publishing young poets and um you know it wasn't with paul it's always been you know, he's a great songwriter but it's always been a coalescence of influences and it's this poem poems there's artwork there's pop art there's fashion i must ask you about shane mcgowan before we go because shane was such an important part of this whole story as well and I, even i think introducing chris parry to the jam and what yeah. started that whole kind of journey as well i mean such a key player in that entire scene and obviously a great friend of yours as well right yeah and also i think shane was important because shane was one of the he was like the, one of the faces of London punk. He was in that, you know, that picture of the ICA where it's, he's getting his ear allegedly bitten off. It was actually kind of a, just a, a small flesh wound, really, if the truth be told. But he was at the front of all the early Pistols gigs and he was a, he was a face of London punk, but also a massive jam fan. And I think that probably in a way, having Shane on board, I think didn't do any harm in terms of the jam's punk credibility. And, um, yeah, you know, he was, he was just always there at the gigs. He was a massive, massive jam fan. And, um, and Paul in turn, I think encouraged and supported his, his music career. Didn't he? I think the Pogues got some early gigs with the jam. So I mentioned to Gary Crowley that you're, you were going to be on the podcast oh, yeah. and, and, and at the time of recording, happy birthday, Gary Crowley. It's his birthday today because you've had so many connections with Paul. He said, where do you think this drive? from Paul comes from this, this, this phenomenal work rate comes from. It's a fire inside, isn't it? And, um, and you can say, you know, it's, it's his, you know, working class, you know, solid working class roots. But I think it's getting back to being a fan as well. I think it's that kind of, that love of music. I mean, he's obviously, he's fired by creativity, you know, the magic of a song not being there one moment. And then the next minute you've suddenly got the basis, you've got some chords and words. I don't know, you know, if, if you could bottle that, you'd, you could sell it for millions. <laughs> I think it's just one of those, it's one of those mysteries, isn't it? What buyers, artists, to, and also, you know, in a way to keep going because, you know, I'm, I'm amazed, you know, I mean, I, I don't see any reason why Paul, if he, you know, if he stays in good health, that he won't be making music well into old age in the way that Dylan and McCartney, I mean, some of these guys, you look at Van Morrison, you know, even McCartney, they, they're kind of speeding up. 
I think Van Morris has had like two albums in the past year, hasn't he? Yeah. You know, I would think there's still a lot more to come. And you, you, since since the um, the millennium, I don't think he's really had a, a long break. Even during COVID, he, he kind of wrote three albums during here. That was that chance for him to just return to exploring the studio. And I guess having his own studio as well, I think mm. just perfect platform. Whenever the muse takes him, he's, he's down to the black barn. But still able to take himself out of the comfort zone. So he ends up doing, you know, the gig with the orchestra of uh, for other aspects and true meanings at the time, you know. That was, yeah, which was a really nice, amazing in a way that he hadn't done it before, but it... Um it, it worked. It was amazing how well those songs worked. Yeah, yeah. And a song like Private Hell with an orchestra in that way, yeah. with an acoustic guitar, just just sounds remarkable. And back to that kind of power of the songwriting, power of the songwriting. When was the last time you connected and interviewed Paul? Can you remember? I bumped into him a few times at the... I, I gave some stuff to the the exhibition and there was the Sky Arts documentary. Um, oh, yeah, about the Young Idea, yeah. It was around the time of those... Um, I mean, I, I, I kind of get the odd text. He went through... A, a phase he'd um he used to send albums out certainly as recently as 22 dreams and wake up the nation you know the, the albums would always come with a handwritten note you know hope you like this one so nice uh, i need to get on that mailing list yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a goal <laughs> and then for you as a music journalist so when did you finish at nme i basically worked at the nme through the 80s i kind of graduated from i did, did 48 thrills and did some stuff for zigzag and then got a job on the enemy probably about 79. So, you know, I chronicled the jam quite extensively for the enemy. I stayed at the enemy to the end of the 80s and worked on um, record labels for a while after that. In fact, I worked at Go Discs as well when Go Discs put out the second solo album. Yeah, you know, I, I, I still write. I do a music column, uh, music column in the Daily Mail every Friday, which is where the, 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 all the recent um, Weller albums have been reviewed. Um, I did sports journalism for a little while in the 90s. It was quite nice to, to kind of way to get away from music writing and then come back. I, I had a kind of bit of a break from it and then uh, came back. NME was such a powerful publication at that time. And it's almost kind of criminal now. It's just a just a website, for goodness sake. But it was there's such a huge deal to so many people. It was their like, weekly Bible, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think when I was there, there was a period in the early 80s. I mean, the circulation was 300,000 a week and even that they say each copy was read by maybe two or three people she probably took about a million readers a week at a time when there was the other music papers obviously but there wasn't much else there wasn't any music in the national papers there was no internet you know spotify even to you know to get a record you had to physically go out and, and buy there was a lot more effort and emotion involved in just accessing the news and accessing the music and yeah it, it was it was huge and um it was a great time to be part of, of something that was so much a part of the, of the kind of UK music scene and, you know, obviously had a lot of clout. And even from, if you think about where you are now, the mail polarises opinion, but if you think it's the biggest website, I think, in the UK, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, the, the Friday Arts section has, you know, we, we have a lot of, you know, still very extensive music coverage. It's just great being able to reach a kind of, an audio, you know, still having a platform to, to write about stuff. So many of your contemporaries have written books and their stories and, and told their tales. There must be a book in you, Adrian, isn't there? Maybe at some point, possibly. But, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's great chatting to you and kind of recounting some of the stories. But, um, yeah, in a way, rather wear all that a little, a little bit more lightly. You know, I don't, I, you know I, I don't really want to make it about me as such in that way. But um, we'll yeah. see. 
I should mention this to the sleeve of the, the back sleeve of Dig New Breed as we wrap things up here. That must have been amazing to get that little mention. So it, let me read it to you. It says, Paul, this is Paul's bit. So Paul had a bit, Bruce had a bit, Rick had a bit on the yeah, back yeah. of the sleeve, right? So this is after the band have, have split. The, the end is done. They got an out, al- what final album to deliver and it's a live album. And Paul says, a brief six years. I mean, that's remarkable in itself, right? <laughs> a brief six years, sweaty, frantic red cow residency. First week, 50 people. Second week, 100. By the fourth week, a queue round the block. Switch. The marquee with Shane, Claudio and Adrian dancing on the stage to the confusion of the usual marquee hippies. Yeah. <laughs> a little shout out for you must have been really special. A little surprise. It was, and it was really nice as well because that came in the wake of the whole uh, cocktail set the cocktail set wars. So it's kind of, it was obviously, you know, there were, there were no hard feelings on Paul's side, which was, which was nice, really. Nice. nice. Um, <laughs> Final two questions. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. Like you say, we're talking about nearly 50 years of material now, right? What, what are you going to go with? Quite a bit about this one, actually. And, um, I mean, I was torn between going from like a, a really early song and then something from a later career. And I think a song I really like of, of 22 Dreams, which is Wherever You Go, which is a kind of, I remember speaking to Paul at the time about that, and he kind of said he wanted to write something like, like Danny Boy, like one of those old kind of songs. And it's it's clearly a song that's written from the perspective of a 50-year-old man, either talking to his kids or his friends or whatever, or kind of you know, young people going off and leaving, fleeing the nest and then coming back. So it's, and it's just a lovely and emotional song. But at the same time, I think I would have to go for like one of the earlier anthems and I would probably go for When You're Young, which is just the obvious classic you can say, Town Called Malice and that's entertainment. But When You're Young, it just, I thought his lyrics by that point, he was coming on. It was in the wake of all mod cons. He was obviously incredibly confident as a songwriter. He was confident in the sound of that production, that wall of sound that Vic Smith had come up, you know, helped them create. And those lyrics, you know, um, you know, the world's your worst and the future's a clam think you're a king but you're really a pawn and it's you know it's actually quite a depressing song when you listen to the lyrics but it's also fired with this romantic idealism I and mean, i think you know paul he's proved himself over the years he's he's a really good social commentator and chronicler he can write political and realistic lyrics but he also and he's he's great at that but i think he's even better writing about just you know in a way kind of the more romantic things and kind of a more romantic view of life and mm. uh, I think that song it just encapsulates, and it, like a lot of these songs, it, it kind of ebbs and flows. There's different sections, and it, and it comes back with like a rousing crescendo at the end. It's um, you know he mastered the art of crafting brilliant three minute pop songs by that point. And standalone singles that wasn't an album track, right? So that this power of that seven inch, which must have just been played over and over and over again, and just that here we are still talking about that over forty years yeah. later. I can't believe that that's the thing through like Spotify and streaming in the same way as it was back then you can't be surely I mean, Spotify is great and you know it's brilliant you can dip into songs but uh, it's different isn't it because you're listening if you go into Spotify and type the jam they'll curate your listening for you and it, it just inevitably the algorithms will dictate it's it's town called malice that's entertainment going underground you know it's it's the big hitters you know, there's been a bit of a debate about this recently about live gigs you know do you go to live gigs just to hear the big hits or do you go to hear you know, the, the back pages. And in some ways it's, it's the less, you know, the songs are very rarely played, but, um, you know, hearing a song, you know, that you know, and you probably never heard live before played is, is actually kind of more special. 
Yeah, that's, you're absolutely right. And also, I think, as you're talking there, it's also the power of an album. And 22 Dreams is an album that sonically, you have to take that journey from track one to track, you know, the end or whatever it is, track 12, 13, whatever. You know, that takes you on that journey. Whereas if you're just dipping into that one single song on 22 Dreams, yeah. which is how the algorithms would work you, it's not the same experience. It's, yeah. it's a really interesting thing. Right, final question. So the purpose of this podcast, Adrian, is to meet lovely people like yourself who've had these wonderful connections with Paul and the Jam and the Star Council and Solo and all that. But the reason I I started the podcast was for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. It was my one big regret from giving up my life as a radio presenter was that I never got to interview Paul Weller. So if it happens, oh my God, it's got to happen. It's got sometimes, surely. Come on, Paul. I should write him a letter. I must do this. Anyway, if it happens, Adrian, what should I ask him? I would just ask him, a, I mean, a, a general question about his lyrical inspiration. And I think it, you know, something I've asked him and he, other than you know, he'll speak about Kind of the, you know, the kinks and traffic and stuff like that. But, you know, where, where do you think it comes from? And, and he probably won't be able to give you an answer because it's just, you know, it probably varies song to song and it's a kind of unfathomable thing, you know, just sort of capturing the uh, uncapturable, really, you know. And it's weird, isn't it? Because, I mean, I know there have been times where he's talked about having writer's block or whatever, but it just seems effortless. The amount of material coming out, it, must, it seems so easy. Yeah. And I'm sure it isn't easy either. I'm sure there's times when it comes, it just comes to him and other times that he probably has to work at it. Maybe if it's not coming, you just leave it. You know, it's, uh, I mean, he's, he's probably fortunate now at this stage in his career. He can work to his own deadlines. So it's not like the early days of the jam where Polydor, you know, they wanted the second album six months after the first. You know, ideally, I think the third album, if it had been up to scratch, would have come out six months after This Is The Modern World, after Modern World. So it's not like you having to hit a Friday deadline or the NME where you're hitting your weekly deadline, is it? It's not got, it's not got this hard finish. It's up to him. He's in control. Yeah. Yeah. Adrian, this has been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It's been lovely digging into these memories. Cheers, then. Take care. Look forward to hearing it. Well, there you go. Once again, my thanks to Adrian Thrills for joining me on the podcast. What a journey from 1976 to now, from In the City to Fat Pop Volume 1, and much more in between. A real joy. Don't forget, you can head to my website for the show notes for this episode of the podcast. You'll find them paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Whilst you're there, dig into our huge audio archive packed full of interviews, conversations, blogs and photographs from so many Weller connections. We're talking fans, friends, family, band members, past, present, and who knows, maybe some of them future, thinking about it. Incredible talent has collaborated with Paul, supported him on tour, and so many, many stories. Do head on the website. You'll find all the details, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. We've got some really, really special episodes coming up for you, okay? I don't usually tease things too much, but here's two real big highlights for you, okay? Huge jam fan, style council, Paul Weller. We're going to be talking to the legend that is Keiko on the podcast, okay? If you've seen the About the Young Idea documentary, you'll know exactly who I mean. A massive fan. This is really special. Coming next on the podcast, plus in a couple of weeks' time, the absolute legend of a talent that is Carleen Anderson on the podcast. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, and more, and spread the word. Tell your friends. Social media. We're at Weller Fan Pod on Twitter or X or whatever it's called this week. Or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.